On this week's Behind the Idea, we revisit the 3M story with Seeking Alpha author Michael Boyd. One thing we try to get feel for was where things went wrong for the company. Boyd points to their market positioning over the years. So when you when you think about you know as a company evolves as a you know 3M obviously you know 100 billion dollar plus company you want to see those kind of pushes into into something that's a little bit more protected and has that kind of long term growth trajectory and I don't I don't necessarily think that some of the some of the business positioning within automotive or electronic is necessarily structured that way. We also talk about whether the recent sell off means that the market has reset expectations, but Boyd points out that the math is still optimistic. If you look at that base of 940 a share versus, you know, 2000, you know, 21 expectations, you know, it's still baking in like 8 9% earnings growth. And if you go towards, you know, that framework that they laid out, you know, at their investor day in 2018, their target was eight to 11% earnings growth. So I don't, I don't think they necessarily, I don't think analysts have really moved away from those targets. 3M is a bellwether hitting on bumpy times, which could portend bad things for the market as a whole, as well as its investors. Boyd does bring up the two words that might most scare investors, General Electric. But are things as bad as all that? Or is this just a healthy reset? And how did we get here? We discuss on Behind the Idea. Welcome to Behind the Idea. I'm Daniel Schwartzman. And I'm Mike Taylor. Today we're following up on 3M Company. A couple weeks ago we talked about the company's recent struggles, its innovative history, and whether that combination made this a buy-the-dip situation or a stay-away story. This week we're speaking with Michael Boyd, Seeking Alpha author and the author of Industrial Insights on our Marketplace platform. It was his bearish take on the company's weak Q1 report that led us to talk about 3M in the first place, so we're excited to ask him about the story and his updated view on the company. Before we begin, Behind the Idea is the podcast that looks at what makes great investment analysis work based on ideas from the Seeking Alpha ecosystem. Neither Mike nor I have any positions to any stocks we plan to discuss, and Michael Boyd also does not have any positions in 3M. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice of any sort. So, Michael, welcome to Behind the Idea. Thanks for having me. So, just let's just start with the basic. What is the core story here for 3M? What is the what should investors be thinking about at this point in the game? Right. I mean, for me, I, I think of this as a as a transitional story uh, based on changing investor perceptions. I mean, you know, obviously, 3M. It's been an industrial bellwether for a very long time. You know, on my side, you know, looking at the industrial sector, you know, it's a company I always look towards just to see how, you know, the global economy is doing for retail investors specifically. You know, most are attracted to that 60 year uh, record of dividend increases. You know, it's paid a dividend for, I believe, uh, 100 years or more at this point. So uh, that's, you know, it has a stellar reputation for, you know, you talked about this in the podcast that you did a couple weeks ago that, you know, reputation for innovation, overall a history of, you know, great returns, you know, outpacing the S&P 500. But it's also one that's been bid up quite a bit over the past uh, 10 years or so. Um, If you go back to, uh, say, 2010, uh, you know, I tend to look at EBITDA, uh, you know, multiple there was a little above 8x, even after the cuts to guidance in the recent share price drop today, you know, we're still around 12 and a half times EBITDA for 2019. Uh, so obviously, there's been a lot of multiple expansion here, and for uh, most investors, I think that they view that as justified, just given the execution 
And obviously, you know, Q1, the guidance cuts that we've seen over the past six months, you know, maybe some of that execution is being called into question. Um, you know, in general, I don't think there's anything wrong with investors paying a little bit more for higher quality uh, assets, especially when you think about where we are, you know, theoretically, at least anyway, and, you know, in the investment cycle. Uh, and multiple expansion by itself isn't a reason to sell a stock. It's not a reason to short it either. Uh, I think the problem is when investors begin to overpay for safety, or at least the perception of safety. And, uh, you know, smaller shareholders in particular really trusted 3M to be great stewards of their capital. And that's something I don't really think has been done very well in recent years from them. You know, I hate to draw, you know, parallels to you know, maybe extreme examples. If you think about like General Electric, you know, uh, you know a couple of years back, it was in much the same place. You know, they had a uh, really sort of convoluted balance sheet, but, you know, the, the results were there. And so investors accepted it. And then once things began to unravel at General Electric, then that's when, you know, investors saw the true colors there and started to head for the exits. You know, 3M doesn't really have that sort of, you know, uh, complicated structure. I mean, obviously there are a lot of operating segments here, but it, you know, it's a diversified industrial, you know, still a relatively clean balance sheet. It doesn't have that sort of GE capital uh, kind of exposure. But at the same time, I think investors are kind of once bitten, twice shy. So, you know, any company that's earning a, you know, a premium multiple, uh, investors expect premium execution. And I don't, I don't think that's really been the case here. Michael, could you tell us a little bit about What's driven this perception that management's execution has sort of gotten off track? What evidence do you see that leads you to that conclusion? Well, I mean, I think if you if you think about the results that they've reported, I mean, obviously, I think some of this is macro related. So, you know, it's, it's out of their hands to some degree. You know, I think if you go back to you know, 2016, 2017, you know, I think globally, I think the, the narrative was like a a globally synchronized recovery, right? So, you know, pretty much everyone internationally was doing well. Uh, and then, you know, I think beginning in 2018 and then, you know, kind of rolling into the trade war, right? You know, Europe started to have uh, pretty poor results, you know, on a GDP basis. You know, the China slow narrative has been a big one. You know, trade is a, a big issue. And whenever you think about large, you know, international industrials, you know, I think 3M, uh, very large exposure to Asia Pac, you know, very large exposure to Europe. Uh, only, you know, maybe a third of their sales, I believe, are, are, nor are North American based. Uh, so I, I think that's part of the driver there is just, you know, when, you, when you're a large industrial and you have exposure on an international basis, you know, it's, it's much more difficult and it's, and it's hard to find shelter uh, if, if trends break. Uh, and also, I, I mean, I think for 3M, uh, when you think about like their cost structure, uh, they've always been... Uh, kind of regarded as you know having some issues on on price and cost. Uh, it's very uh, fixed costs in their business. If you think about like their their innovation platform and, and everything like that, so when sales tend to slip, costs tend to uh, not retreat in kind. The business doesn't really flex. So when you have those issues, uh, like in Q1, is even especially when it's not adjusted on a constant currency basis, just because the dollar has been so strong issues really start to manifest themselves. So I think that's, that's been the major driver. And I think, you know, just in the end markets as well, you know, they've really, you know, kind of ramped some exposure into, you know, electronics and automotive and to a lesser degree, maybe aerospace in some areas. 
and you know those are tend to be you know highly cyclical uh, markets. So when when you have issues where sales tend to slip or, or global growth tends to slow, then those businesses are impacted more than say like the consumer division, which is you know been I mean that's the bread and butter. You know most investors when they think about this, they think of you know, scotch tape and sponges and post-it notes and, and, and that kind of thing, right? And that's just a small portion of their business, but it's been a part of the business actually done very well of late, including in Q1. So I, I think I think that's the major issue is, you know, just the the cost structure of the business and then just the nature of the end markets that they're in. So, but those don't sound like execution issues. Those sound like sort of larger forces and the attributes of the business model. I guess what I'm trying to... No, I think to some degree, you know, many of their problems aren't necessarily executional in a way. They they are somewhat structural to the firm, you know, and and it's the same thing when, you know, when I I can talk about like their balance sheet and capital allocation policy and and that kind of thing, right? So that's that's more like a financial execution and the capital allocation decisions that they've been making in the business, but it's not necessarily, you can't really say like, you know, oh, they moved, you know, they're not doing a good job on uh, you know, manufacturing or, or something like that, right? It's mainly just, you know, the, the overall structure of the business and the overall design and what they're trying to achieve versus the way the global market is today. So is the aerospace or automotive, are, are those examples of capital allocation decisions that you disagree uh, you with? Know, in general, um, I don't necessarily dislike some of those businesses you know i mean i like i mean some decisions they've made have been very healthy you know the move into healthcare especially you know it's definitely a, a less cyclical business where they're achieving you know a great multiple i think maybe some of the issue within you know automotive or aerospace is you know 3m has never really uh, they really haven't pushed towards that kind of like uh, you look at other industrials like maybe like honeywell or dan hair or anyone like that there's been this more push towards software and you know, General Electric as well, right? When you think about like, you know, they're pushing to like GE innovation and like a, the internet of things, and that kind of thing. It's not, they haven't really made that push towards something that might be a little bit more uh, growing above market rate or, or have a little bit more protection from, from a competition perspective. So when you, when you think about, you know, as a company evolves, as a, you know, 3M, obviously, you know, $100 billion plus company, you want to see those kind of pushes into into something that's a little bit more protected and has that kind of long term growth trajectory. And I don't I don't necessarily think that some of the some of the business positioning within automotive or electronic is necessarily structured that way. And I think that in some ways comes down to you know their innovation platform. If you look at you know how operational cash flow or free cash flow has has moved in the past five years, it hasn't really hasn't really shifted. You know, if you go back to 2013, 2014 versus today, really free cash flow really hasn't moved. So, so a lot of the shifts in the share price, you know, have been driven by, you know, increased leverage on the balance sheet, right? You know, they've bought back, I think, $25, $30 billion uh, worth of shares uh, since 2013. Uh, and a lot of that has been debt funded. So if you look at the, you know, the balance sheet back in, you know, 2014, you know, net cash was, or net debt, sorry, was like uh, $3 billion today. It's, you know, Ten billion dollars north of that. It's more around thirteen billion, right? But you know, EBITDA really hasn't moved, so there's a lot more gearing in the balance sheet, which also makes it a lot more levered to structural changes when these kind of things happen. So, Michael, one question I want to, or I actually want to put a couple things together, which is that you, you mentioned in their innovation platform, and last last time we talked about this, Mike talked about how 
3M is sort of a paragon of innovation, of industrial development over the years. And what I'm curious about is is two things. One more related to your work and one to 3M is that we've talked about their their premium, even just the EV EBITDA multiple going up to the teens from eight over the past decade. And I when we pull up your your past history, you've been bullish on the company in the past, I think. And so I'm just curious what you would attribute the 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 past multiple that past premium to is it just that innovation and then it hasn't played out or what do you think the past premium is and what sort of i mean i think you've sort of previewed your answer here but i just wanted to see if you could pin down a little bit more what what's changed in re in the last 18 months or two years that has led 3m into the position where it's become less of an attractive company Right. And I, th I think if you go back, you know, obviously, you know, I, I wrote something on Seeking Alpha, I think in early in 2017, where, you know, I acknowledge like the the higher multiple, right? You know, I mean, that's, that's always been the, to an extent, it's always been the case here where, you know, they carry a higher premium. And that, that does come down to towards past execution. I mean, if you look at like their innovation platform, you know, I think their R&D target as a percent of sales is five and a half to six percent, then you have like the the usual capex, you know, I think it's like five and a half percent as well, right? So they 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 do heavily invest in this, in this business, and if you compare that to a lot of industrials, uh, that's well above the rate that they're that they intend to do. So I, I think it's a, uh, I mean, that's a decision that companies have to make, right? You know, you can either you know run it like two percent, you know, R and D, which isn't unusual in the industrial space, and maybe you generate a lot of free cash flow, but maybe you know as a manager you have a track record of you know, really doing a great job of finding tuck-in acquisitions, right? So you, you set aside that cash flow and then, you know, you, you add on to your business uh, with internally free, you know, free generated cash flow. Whereas, you know, 3M elected, you know, hey, we have this long running culture for a very long time. You know, it makes the, the fortune list of most admired companies, you know, pretty much every year. You know, we can really attract top talent, you know, let, let, you know let's pay to develop this internally, you know, versus acquire it. And I think if, uh, you know, if you go back, you know, 10 years or so. And, you know, even stretching into, you know, 2015, 2016, you know, some steps into maybe like, uh, you know, the energy business in particular, you know, I think uh, was really getting a lot of press then, you know, from, from the innovation standpoint. So I think, you know, I think that's the part of the challenge is that, you know, especially over the past several years, you know, investors really haven't been seeing much in the way of growth, you know, true actual growth, you know, either the top or bottom line driven by that innovation. I think that, I mean, that's always been part of the, part of the story, right? As you know, these, you know, they have, they're in so many different businesses, but you know, there's this uh, inter-segment kind of like, you know, engineers on, you know, scotch tape might be helping out someone on, on the other, on another side of the business. Right. And then they also have a policy where, you know, I think believe it's up to 15% of employee time can be dedicated to, you know, to their own personal projects. Uh, doesn't even need approval from a manager. Right. So it really kind of fosters that, you know, they really try to foster that that innovative mindset, but it really hasn't come through. And uh, you know, at least in in recent years, you know, 3M really hasn't been a great acquirer either. And especially if you think about Acelity, you know, the recent acquisition they made, I mean, that's another six point seven billion dollars in debt that'll you know it'll hit the balance sheet. Uh, that's one of the largest acquisitions you know that they've ever made. If you go back over the past, I think you know probably eight or nine years, 
that's about what they spent on every single acquisition. So, you know, there's a lot riding on those kind of deals and it seems like there's maybe a little bit of a shift uh, towards trying to, to buy their, and I, you know, I think I wrote about this as well on, on a salad here, right? Is they're trying to kind of, you know, buy a little bit of growth uh, versus internally generated, which is a little bit of a, a market shift for them. And I think that brings about a little bit more execution risk uh, to their business as well. So the, it's interesting sort of walking through the, the cash flow decision tree and wh- where you can allocate your cash and what you're hoping for it. And one thing that has happened more discreetly since 2018 is that management's changed over. And I'm just curious how much you think the story is related to that as well. Is that it, it, what's your sense? I think we're about a year into where Michael Roman has been the CEO of the company. Do you get, uh, and you would raise the question of execution issues and obviously the fact that they're not hitting their guidance specifically. I'm just curious what you think as far as if the, if they're going to bigger acquisitions than ever, if the innovation lever isn't really working the way that it used to, how does, what do you think of the management team here is how much do you think that that's involved versus just general general issues at the company yeah i mean obviously you know some of it's going to be general i mean i think you know with michael roman I, you never want to see management come in and and get off on the wrong foot like they have and i think maybe some of that is just unexpected on their end you know but it's never good to see kind of that like you know over promise under deliver kind of framework you know begin to develop because i think you know especially in in the large cap space you know, investors really want to feel safe and secure uh, that, you know, the executive team, uh, you know, when you're talking about companies of the size, you know, that's a, that's a lot of, uh, you know, on a day-to-day basis, there's a, there's a lot that they're involved in, right? You know, it's not like a, a small cap, right? Where you know, maybe it's a couple hundred million dollar firm. It's very easy for a CEO uh, to have a good grasp on, on every little nuance of their business, you know, when you talk about CEOs at a large cap space, they, they really have to be like a, a, you know, a certain type of personality to do very well. Uh, you know, I, I guess it remains to be seen if that's the case for, for Michael Roman. I mean, I think, you know, for uh, 3M in general, I don't think, it, I don't think he's really a, a change from past CEOs. I, I think to some extent that comes down to that culture of innovation. You know, 3M really isn't a company that's going to go, you know, outside hire and into major executive roles, right? You know, this is a, you know, when you think about like fostering innovation and being like a differentiated company in that way, where you're kind of cultivating innovation, you know, on the inside, you know, I think the board is probably going to view that as, you know, an outsider really isn't going to understand, you know, what makes 3M tick. But I, I think the, the flip side of the coin is that, you know, there's not really any like new fresh blood or new or new thought, right? You know, it's a, uh, it can be difficult, I think, for for major executives at these firms. You know, when they've been entrenched in it for very long, it's very, be very unusual for a, uh, a new manager to come in that's been at 3M for 20 years or something like that, and then like come in and you know completely shift uh, policy and approach. You know, that, that would be very unusual to me. And once again, I mean, I kind of you can kind of draw that to, to General Electric as well, right? You know, you had you know. ML and everyone like that, right? You know, it was a very similar structure where, you know, they, they hired insiders until, you know, recently with Culp where I think, you know, the board of directors just had enough and they're like, you know, we have to, we have to try something different because clearly the approach we're taking isn't working. Uh, and I'm not saying that 3M is going to have that type of event, but I wouldn't expect, uh, you know, management teams or management direction to really shift from person to person. So in that way, I don't think, you know, this is maybe 
uh, a Michael Roman issue specifically. I think it's maybe in a large part, it's probably just a timing issue for him. And when he became involved in the firm, uh, just made worse, I think, by uh, the guidance that they gave. Uh, I don't really think that, you know, I would assume most likely that, you know, anyone else uh, would have probably laid out similar guidance and I had to go on through the, the same process. So what do you, what kind of changes would you be looking for? It sounds like this is potentially a longer term issue. So maybe not something that can happen right away, but what would you be looking for from management that might flip you back or at least make, make you feel a little bit less bearish? I guess you're flat now, but right, what are you yeah. looking for? From management, I mean, I, you know, I think anytime you know you have a, a firm of the size with size with so many discrete operations, you know, I think you can make an argument for, uh, you know, let's let's pare this down, let's let's try and you know sell a business line so we can kind of refocus a little bit on our core competencies, or you know, maybe you, you just go the spinoff route as well, right? Maybe you kind of separate your you know your high growth businesses from your low growth, or something like that, to try and create value for shareholders while also you know, uh, you know, allowing the market uh, and the man- new management to, to kind of uh, view them as kind of truly discrete operations, whereas uh, not being a part of this giant conglomerate structure. Uh, you know, I think there'd be a lot of value there. I mean, you saw the same thing, you know, with United Technologies, right? You know, you kind of spinning off the you know, Otis and Carrier business, uh, you know, see that with General Electric as well with GE Healthcare. Um, you know, I think the argument there, and, you know, I'll probably get, you know, probably taken to the woodshed by Longs because, you know, this like I said, this, the long-term structure here is supposed to be, you know, all these segments, you know, everyone works together for a common goal, you know, we share technology and everything like that. So, you know, I think the argument from Bulls is that, you know, a separation here uh, doesn't make sense given that innovation platform and structure. Um, and like I guess that, you know, your opinion there goes, goes along whether you think, you know, past execution over the past, you know, five years or so versus other industrials is uh, acceptable or not. Um, and I think if you go, if you look at the share price, you know, at least up until, you know, we had that run to maybe like uh, above $220 a share, you know, that's when I started getting interested on the short side in the first place. Uh, you know, it's, it, there's been a lot of multiple expansion there. Investors were willing to shrug off, you know, the kind of weak execution, uh, you know, as a, as a short term issue. But, you know, the longer we go uh, without a return to some, you know, meaningful growth, uh, then I think those, uh, I don't, I don't necessarily think that kind of like, uh, split up the business conversation. I don't think that goes away. So that sort of leads to the question of where do you, what do you think about the shares in the business right now? Uh, what do you think about the valuation? What do you think about what the market is watching for from 3M? I mean, even since you're, I guess you wrote about it again with relation to the Acelity deal, but. The stock fell off quite a bit after your last article. So, what what what's your? Where do you see the company right now and the shares valuation, et cetera? Right. I mean, I, you know, if you go to the comments section, I don't think I gave a price target. You know, in the article, you know, I always respond. Uh, you know, to, to anyone that asks. You know, I was looking for like you know one hundred fifty five to one hundred sixty dollars. It's just like a uh, uh, a place for for me to cover. Uh, you know, you know, that's where I covered my short. You know, I think we had that dip down to you know one hundred fifty nine bucks or so. Uh, you know, I headed, uh, you know, I headed for the exits there just, uh, you know, there's always going to be a little bit of relief buying, especially in a name like this. Uh, I think, uh, especially, you know, dividend investors in particular, I mean, you know, if you look at the comments, right, you know, people cite, 
you know, highest dividend yield in, you know, in a very long time. You know, obviously that ignores the changes in the payout ratio. I mean, if you go back to, you know, 2000, you know, 13, 14, they're paying out like 35% free cash flow. You know, today it's like 65 or 70%. So, you know, obviously, you know, the yield is going to go higher on a, on a, you know, on a, you know, comparison basis like that, you know, obviously on a, on a free cash flow basis, I don't, I don't think the value is necessarily there. Uh, but no, I mean, I, I think it's structurally from here. I mean, I, I would kind of view it as like a market perform kind of like hold kind of situation. You know, I, you know, if this was, if this had sold off to something like $120, $130 a share, uh, you know, I would probably be interested on the long side, but, you know, I think, you know, especially with firms like this, you know, uh, I may never really get the opportunity on the long side and, you know, as a deep value investor, that's okay. You know, I, everything that I like or follow or I'm interested in, it's it, sometimes it just never gets to a price where, where I'm personally interested in, you know, that's okay. You know, you know, on the long side, I'm generally looking to hold, you know, 15 or 20 positions. Uh, you know, most of those are kind of intermediate term holds, you know, a couple years at, you know, at best, unless I see something, you know, really like long-term and structural with a, with significant upside. And, you know, given all the, you know, the time I put into the market, you know, there's going to be, you know, I'm going to look at hundreds of things and, you know, most companies just are, are never going to make it into my portfolio. What do you make about specifically what, what you mentioned, the sort of dividend growth investor crowd, The you mentioned the idea of the yield being as high as it's been. We talked about a comment on one of your articles that basically they, they said they didn't under, they didn't know anything about the 2019 to 23 framework. And, you know, we sort of came away with mixed views on that, because there's something to be said for just sticking to what you know. What do you make of that when you see that in the market? You obviously write a lot on Seeking Alpha. You get a lot. Of, you get to see a good, as wide a swath of the commenting behavior as we do, probably. So, what what did you make of that sort of crowd out there in a stock like 3M? What do you think of that being either on the other side of the trade or even now as you've as you've closed your position? Right. I mean, you know, obviously everyone puts a, a different amount of time uh, into the market. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to outperform or underperform, you know, versus, you know, indices. Right. You know, you know, everyone has a different approach. Everyone has a different you know strategy. And, you know, there are plenty of investors that, you know, uh, come to very good conclusions just based on, you know, a quick look, you know, with me. You know, I think that, you know, that kind of dividend yield story, like I explained, I don't, I don't really think that, you know, holds, you know, water uh, just from a, you know, just because of the movement of the payout ratio. Uh, but that doesn't mean that, you know, 3M might not work from here. I, I think most dividend investors on Seeking Alpha that are maybe, you know, they make a couple buys a quarter, maybe, you know, they have a, a core portfolio of maybe, you know, a couple dozen names that they like. And they follow, maybe they, you know, they keep an eye on the, on the Q's and K's when they come out, they catch the conference calls, you know, they, you know, they read the occasional article on Seeking Alpha, right? You know, being engaged in their investments. And uh, that's a good thing. You don't have to put, you know, 40, 50 hours uh, a week into your portfolio to do great. And, you know, obviously everyone that has a, you know, a normal nine to five day job just can't do that, right? Not everyone's in a situation where they do this full time. Uh, I think... The strategy overall, I mean, I think it, I think it could work. Uh, but in general, you know, most investors uh, might make a, a few mistakes that way. Uh, just not really following, uh, you know, management guidance or framework and kind of how that plays into Wall Street expectations. Because I think that it's a little bit nebulous uh, when you get, I guess I think, especially seeking out for comments in a whole, 
they get a little bit confused on Wall Street upgrades, downgrades, you know, when price targets move, uh, when institutions tend to, to buy or sell. And, you know, like it or not, a lot of that is driven by uh, what investment banks say in the research. And in many cases, uh, the first line of attack for, you know, any analyst is to, is to speak management uh, and to see what their view is of the future and what, what outlook they have over the next couple of years. Uh, you know, and I, you know, on the last podcast that you did on this topic, right, you know, we talked about kind of the resetting of expectations, you know, and, and how that's impacted 3M. Because obviously, you know, it's still a little bit, you know, of a Wall Street darling. I, I mean, I think, the, I think the consensus target's like $190 a share uh, at the moment. So that implies, a, you know, a decent amount of upside uh, for a large cap. And, you know, expectations have come down uh, a little bit. If you go out to 2021, uh, you know, I think the... I think the target is around uh, $12 a share uh, at the moment. Um, consensus for 2019 is $9.40 a share, which I think is in the midpoint uh, of their recently reduced guidance, right? So, you know, whenever whenever management cuts guidance, the first thing that most, you know, sell-side analysts are going to do is they're going to, you know, adjust their models to try and fit uh, that framework. Uh, you know, in most cases, it's fairly rare probably for analysts to go outside the mold uh, of a guidance range, unless it's something that they're, you know, they're really trying to to make a name on or, or do something different, right? So if you think about like Tusa with, with GE, right? So you know, if you look at that base of nine forty a share versus you know two thousand, you know twenty one expectations, you know that's still baking in like eight nine percent earnings growth. And if you go towards you know that framework that they laid out, you know, at their investor day in 2018, their target was eight to 11% earnings growth. So I don't, I don't think they've necessarily, I don't think analysts have really moved away from those targets. I think they've just sort of reset the base a little bit lower, right? So maybe they view that, you know, eight, 9% as achievable. It's just coming off a much lower base than what they expected in 2019. So, so maybe as, and this has been great, but I think as a last question that sort of sets up is just, what do you, not, not a, prediction obviously you don't have your position anymore but what are you watching for what do you think investors should pay attention to with 3m over the rest of the year over the coming months or into 2020 and into this framework like what should they be focused on most if they're looking to understand the company and to potentially invest in the shares in either direction you know i think i think guidance has been cut to the point now uh where it's achievable you know i i think Management teams, when they when they get put in this position, uh, they realize that they're you know ideally you only cut guidance you know once. So when you when you've cut this many times, uh, at some point you 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 just have to put a, a a low ball number out there that you can readily achieve and, and have no worries about achieving. So I think they can hit the number uh, for this year. Uh, I think looking forward, I think investors really have to look at the Acelity deal. I think the execution there is going to be really important for them. Uh, you know, obviously this is a new management team, so they already have a pretty full plate uh, when it comes to uh, overall, you know, company direction. They've got a lot of moving parts, you know, with the recent distress in, in, in the share price. So, you know, they they already have a lot on their mind. You know, integrating a you know a you know a nearly seven billion dollar deal uh, with a lot of moving pieces in, in what is a, a smaller div- division for them. Uh, it's going to bring some challenges. Uh, I think so. I think investors have to watch the numbers there. Uh, I think they should keep an eye on the restructuring that they're doing. Uh, you know, they announced a 
you know, some tiny cost cuts, uh, you know, trying to take a little bit of that cost out of the business. I think they should be doing so that, you know, that's good to see, uh, you know, and I think they're moving very slowly in that direction uh, just to make sure that they don't overcut, which I think is, once again, I think, you know, I think that's the right way to approach it. Uh, but I think investors really have to watch that kind of, you know, the usual kind of non-gap uh, to gap, you know, reconciliations, making sure that, you know, costs aren't going out of control on this or, or there's not too many adjustments. You know, that's something that, you know, investors like myself, you know, for playing around in small caps and mid caps and, you know, roll up stories and that kind of thing. We're very used to kind of parsing out and making sure, you know, everything is above board. I mean, if you're in large caps, uh, usually there's not a very large spread uh, between non-gap and gap numbers. Uh, so you know, that would be something I would watch. Uh, I would watch the, you know, the free cash flow numbers as well to see if we, you know, we finally start to see a little bit of movement there in the right direction. Um, you know, especially with new acquisitions coming on board, you know, they've been a net acquirer over the past couple of years. We haven't seen a lot of improvement there. And that's even with the you know, benefits of tax cuts in 2018. Numbers wise, you know, free, you know, if you back test to see what leads to outperformance, you know, you know free cash flow yield does much better versus, you know, price to earnings or something like that. Um, that's where I focus. And I think investors should focus there as well. But overall, you know, I think it's I think it's worth, you know, checking the tone and making sure that, you know, a lot of these issues are being resolved. And then especially as we head into the back half of the year, you know, as some of these concerns ease, you know, there's a little bit of growth uh, that's expected, in, you know, into Q3 and Q4 in particular. Uh, so I'd make sure that they hit those numbers there. Right. Okay. Sounds like a pretty clear set of areas to watch for and it's just yeah it's it's interesting with a company this big and that has uh, you mentioned even steven tusa for example with ge and even here he's one of the analysts who has reset and when you're just thinking about the eyes that are there are probably more eyes on 3m now given the sell-off and so yeah that's helpful to hear how the how what they're now saying with the reset guidance translates to where the share where the stock is now so all right great well thank you so much michael this has been a uh, really enjoyable talking to you about this and um yeah good congrats on this playing out for you well and uh thanks for taking the time to speak with us about it you know anytime you know obviously i'm out of the position now so uh, you know i wish any bulls you know good luck on this one because you know at the end of the day you know you know i want to see you know people do well in market and make money so 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 neutral so it's it's we don't have too many people who aren't talking their books, so it's kind of fun to just hear you wish other investors well. We don't have enough wishing other investors well on this podcast. No, 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 definitely so. You know, I, you know, I, I never, I never, you know, even on the short side, you know, I, you know, I hate to be, you know, against people. Right? I don't, I don't try to view it as being against people. You know, on the short side, I think I'm just trying to, to convince Longs to to see the other side of the story. You know, I, I never hate to see, you know, I hate to see, you know, people lose money, right? You know, especially. You know, seeking out when you think about you know the traditional retail base, right? So you know, I want everyone to to have a a good time in the market. You know, have money for retirement and everything like that, right? So a good time in the market. I think that's sort of that's the behind the idea motto. At least I think that's what we shoot for. Exactly. So yeah, something for us to take with us, Daniel and I. A little more goodwill towards other people. We'll try and bring that in. <laughs> all right great um all right well thanks michael this has been a lot of fun yeah uh, thanks a lot thanks, michael thanks for taking the time i appreciate right. it
All right, take care. Take care. Thanks for listening to Behind the Idea. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Have any feedback on the podcast or requests for other topics? Email us at btipod at seekingalpha.com. We're looking into potential follow-ups around mall reads, as well as fresh ideas to cover, and would love to hear your thoughts. As always, if you can leave us a review on Apple, we would really appreciate that as well. This has been a Seeking Alpha production. Thank you for listening, and see you next week on Behind the Idea. Hi, listeners. This is Daniel Schwarzman, director of the Seeking Alpha Marketplace and co-host of Behind the Idea, another Seeking Alpha podcast. We just did an interview with Michael Boyd, who runs Industrial Insights on the Seeking Alpha Marketplace. It was a discussion about 3M Company, a company he has written bearishly about over the past few months. We thought it would be of interest to Marketplace Roundtable listeners, so if you're curious about Michael's thoughts on the company's position, whether the recent sell-off has reset expectations, and how he approaches the market as a deep value investor, have a listen.